0: I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Conflict done well can be creative. A meeting of minds, broad horizons, unseen possibilities. But when it goes wrong, it can lead to a loss of trust, personal anguish, and maybe expensive litigation. Today's guest, Melissa Scadden, partner at Justicial Lawyers, is a dispute resolver with a passion for prevention. We talk about the causes, the pitfalls, and human frailty, and we land on some ingredients for effective conflict resolution. Melissa Skadden, welcome. Before we get into the topic of dispute resolving, I'm sort of a little bit interested about how you got there. When you're out at a social event and there's that awkward moment where someone says, so what do you do? What do you say? (laughs)
1: Sadly, I think like many lawyers, as I am one, you've got a bit of a hesitation to so not, not sure how it's going to go down with a particular crowd. Um, I So, look, I'm I'm a lawyer, I'm an employment lawyer, so that tends to be the response that comes first very quickly followed afterwards by, but I do a lot of work in the alternative dispute resolution space and the conflict resolution space. Right. Um, because that's, I think, you could say where my passion lies, even though I came into it through the employment law
0: And it's funny that by, uh, and just by way of disclosure, you're a partner at Justicia Lawyers and we have done some work together. And it's funny, I think of you more as a dispute resolver who happens to do a bit of lawyering (laughs) than the other way around.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, getting, it's getting to that point, I think, thankfully. And it's often the case, isn't it, the things you're passionate about, you do more of and, and you tend to do a bit better as well. So I'm, I'm certainly doing a lot more in that space at the moment, which is great.
0: What was your sort of legal background and how did you find your way into dispute resolving?
1: Essentially, everything that came across my desk uh, was there because there'd been a conflict that hadn't been resolved effectively. Ultimately, it's what it came down to. And as you say, law is, is highly adversarial and uh, in the worst case scenario, it gets to protracted litigation and, and you get to the end of that and there are no winners. Even if notionally you might have a winner decision, there are no winners. You've destroyed often destroyed relationships and you've got a really hefty bill at the end of it as well. And I was walking away from a lot of this work feeling pretty pretty dissatisfied about the fact that th- there were all these really broken relationships uh, and there wasn't this ability for parties to, to work together, particularly in the employment space. I was finding it really dissatisfactory that ultimately you ended up with one person having to leave the workplace. You you don't want that. And so that's why I sort of started looking back and thinking, okay, where did this start? Where did it go so horribly wrong? And generally speaking, it was because people hadn't had the conversations early enough. They hadn't dealt with the issues early enough. Ultimately, the only way out was, as we say, that someone leaving the workplace.
0: So when we talk about, dispute resolution and words like mediation and arbitration are thrown around and there is a bit of a difference. Can we just start with the philosophy or the theory that kind of your understanding kind of post-World War II of where this mediation thing came from?
1: yes yeah, so certainly and we do see a lot of it in terms of this whole idea of uh, alternative dispute resolution and so i think that t- traditionally the whole idea of of dispute resolution was this idea of litigation basically and and yours it, is so highly adversarial where you've got both parties that essentially have to argue their case and then certainly there became the idea that to avoid that uh, lengthy and costly dispute you ended up with, you had to explore other ways, uh, such as mediation, for example, that was so rather than getting that positional approach to the dispute, it really came back to a more of an interest based approach or principles based approach to dispute resolution. Uh, and essentially, that was about understanding what it, the, the interests of each party. So then the possibility of actually identifying the common interests there as well, if there were any. And I'm saying the driving force and the motivation behind the disputes, as opposed to if you think about a more positional dispute argument, you've got both people in either corners. And the idea is, is that you defend your case to the nth degree. In order for you to defend it really robustly, it's, you almost can't see the other side. You've got to so firmly believe in your own side. And so your ability to actually see another point of view is greatly diminished and sometimes even impossible. So if you're looking at it more, okay, let's get people out of their positions and instead uh, understand what the the interests of the principles are behind their positions, why, why is it that they've gotten to that point, there's a better chance of actually understanding where they're coming from and then having it more forward-focused and moving forward. And and so certainly there became this, I suppose, evolution of these alternative means of of dealing with disputes. We've seen through the courts now a lot of this uh, alternative dispute resolution is actually now mandated as well. And certainly there are different schools of thought as to how effective mandated (laughs) mediation is, for example. But but, but certainly I've been involved in quite a few of them and they have been successful. Uh, So it really forces the parties to actually consider, do I want to go down this route? Do I really want to go down this, this litigation route?
0: Where's the problem with two parties just saying, okay, well, we'll compromise compared with the sort of dispute resolution that you're talking about?
1: Often effective dispute resolution does result in a compromise. But I think the difficulty with starting from that perspective is that if if you're making fun of you compromise your goal, you generally, again, you start from those opposite positions. So it's a really positional approach okay, I'm going to compromise, but here's my position and I'm going to start by often you'll take a, a bargaining approach. So you might say I'm going to drive a hard bargain here and I'm not going to move, I'm not going to budge until the very, very end and th- this is how much I'm willing to move. Um, and so, again, it, it, it's so adversarial and it results in these entrenched positions and then it almost becomes a question of how much you can win, how much ground you're going to give, and it often results in an outcome or a compromise that no one's actually happy with but they'll accept because at least the other person has lost something as well.
0: So I presume in that sense we're talking about moving away from just horse trading to I guess people need a, a greater level of emotional intelligence or awareness of what's important to each side to be effective?
1: Well, absolutely, and certainly in the dispute resolution that I do, that is one of the, the first first goals really or the first steps is really to get a greater understanding of the other person and I think that's crucial in any sort of dispute resolution and when we're talking about dispute resolution here people often think mediation arbitration litigation they think about these more formal methods of dispute resolution where certainly the area where I work in or I'm trying to work more with people is even almost before that 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 point where you're actually having these conversations before it becomes gets to the point where you need a formal process and you're actually having the difficult conversations where there might be a conflict but you're almost avoiding that conflict even occurring and that involves understanding where the other person is coming from. So having that greater awareness of where they're coming from and also having greater self-awareness of the positions you've adopted, why perhaps you've adopted it. And what impact that position might be having on the other person as well.
0: So just to be clear, when you talk about that, your work sort of is around the workplace
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so most of the work that I do is with employers. I work with boards. I work with councils, which is obviously the work that I've been doing with you, Steve. So it is looking at trying to resolve that conflict in the workplace before it gets to the point where someone has to leave. And frequently, obviously, if, if you're going to be litigating against your employer, chances are the relationship's over. Even if you're going down those more formal methods such as mediation, as much as we absolutely advocate it, 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 it still can be quite difficult to come back from. So if, if we can have these conversations to avoid the conflict of even getting to that point, that's my goal.
0: What are the sorts of organisations that see the value of investing in an environment rather than waiting until there's a problem and then calling in the dispute specialist?
1: There's certainly a very special organisation that invests in that. Sadly, I think many of the ones that I've worked with that do are the ones that have actually had the experience of it going horribly wrong, really understand how it can, that the impact, those kind of really intractable intractable disputes, even if they don't become litigation, um, the impact that can have in the workplace uh, is, ma- is massive and it can't be underestimated. So it's often those employers that uh, will invest in that and also those real value-based, I think, employers that understand your people are your greatest asset and if you have an environment where people are in a high conflict environment uh, where they feel they can't raise issues for example which is what we're seeing about a lot in the press at the moment it's not a healthy environment to work in and you're not going to have happy people and productive people.
0: So what do you see as the I suppose the interpersonal attributes or the personal attributes of people in a workplace who are effective at understanding and dealing with conflict? What, you know, what do you need from people to get through an effective dispute resolution process?
1: So I think one of the crucial things actually is, is, is having some goodwill or desire to resolve it. If you get people at the point where they're actually ready to walk or they want the other person to walk, that's the only outcome they can see as possible. It's very, very difficult. You've got to get it at the point where the individuals are effectively, I, I just want to come to work, do my job, yep. do it well, and then go home and not have to think too much about it, <laughs> not have to lose sleep over it. And so I wanted to get to that point. And so if you can get them then, that's really important. Beyond that, other attributes, self-awareness is is really important as well. We've got our blind spots, I guess. It's very hard sometimes to really understand how we come across. And that's actually for a lot of very good physiological reasons. I mean, first of all, your face. When you're watching a a Zoom video aside, generally speaking, you're not doing a conversation where you can see your facial expressions. So if you're in a conversation with someone, particularly a high-conflict one, you can't see your expressions, you can't see your micro-expressions, and a lot is conveyed through that. So it can be hard to have a level of self-awareness about that. Your voice as well, we actually have, um, it's called the STS, which basically switches off when we're talking, and that is what enables you to hear tone. And so that's why when you hear your voice recorded back, often people say, I, I don't sound like that. That's not me. Well,
0: this podcast is something to look forward to, isn't it?
1: <laughs> exactly. And so and, and so that's why. And it's very good reasons why. It's a processing thing. Like when we are, we've got so many things to think about when we're talking, when we're communicating with someone. And so it's about, being, I suppose, being economical with our mental resources. So it's a processing thing. There's a very good reason for it. But it does mean that you literally don't hear yourself the way other people hear
0: you. Well, listen, um, Peter Singer, I think it was, says that organisations have a knack for creating um, unnatural enemies. That sometimes just working in an organisation, you've got people who look at the world through a different frame, an operational frame, a financial frame, a strategic frame. How do you kind of bring those frames together when It's like that classic sort of distinction between sales and marketing and production when people have a different job.
1: Yeah. And so there's a couple of different ways to do it. Certainly, there's a good argument for at the point of recruitment, you still need to make sure that we've got some aligned values. Again, the values-based organisation essentially lives and breathes those values and they are embedded in every decision that our organisation makes particularly the recruitment decisions. So, yes, they might have perhaps different approaches, particularly when it comes to you know their roles, management approaches, et cetera. But if we're talking about underlying, a shared underlying value, then it's easy to find that common ground. And so that's certainly one way that you can try and overcome that. Beyond that, a lot of it is, again, about that upskilling in terms of communicating. So making sure that you're actually listening when they're talking to you and actually taking on board. I suppose it's learning more about them, I guess, and actually understanding the person that you're working with. It's that relationship building. I think that what people so frequently don't really understand is that we spend so much time at work And we spend so much time with these individuals. And as you say, it is, it's just such a diverse sort of melting pot of of different personalities, of different approaches. And so it is important to actually learn a little bit about the people that you're working with. And that's where a manager's role is crucial because they're trying to foster that environment where the team can safely do that as well. Uh, So so certainly that's key, I think. And, again, it's, it's having that self-awareness as well as how you're coming across and what your conflict style is.
0: Yep. And like moving up a level, I suppose, Mm -hmm. boards and councils are told to stay out of the operations of an organisation because that's the role of the CEO and the executive team to deal with that culture. But at that really high end, the pointy end of organisations, what can they do, board members and councillors, to create that environment where conflict is managed productively?
1: They play a really crucial role in essentially setting the tone for the organisation. Obviously, from a from a risk and a compliance perspective, the board needs to be across. The, the, obviously, the there is a risk within an organisation, and conduct can be a massive area of risk for organisations. I mean, again, we're seeing it play out in the media. It's it's, it's no longer acceptable to have these individuals in your organisation that have got this unprofessional, inappropriate, and often unsafe behaviour. And that's proving to be an enormous risk to organisations, not only from risks of claims, but it's reputational. Uh, and, and the fact is, if you don't have effective complaint handling mechanisms in your organisation, your people are going to hit social media. And so boards need to be across that. They need to make sure that they've got these policies in place that set the tone where they say, this is what we consider to be appropriate in the organisation. What's appropriate conduct is, and this, and ensuring that the policies adequately deal with it, and so that from a risk perspective has got to be in place. But then, from they themselves, they've got to model it. There's going to be no confidence, I suppose, in the organization in that it truly is values based if the people at the top aren't living those values. And so, when you're going through that exercise of determining an organization's values, it's not something that should be done by the marketing department. <laughs> Um, you know it, it, it's it's not even necessarily something that should just solely be done by hr or people and culture it it needs to be done as an exercise from the top but absolutely with input from the organization and it's and it is it's it's a lengthy exercise and but it's so important
0: yeah because i suppose in that i' make a joke occasionally Melissa they're all the same they all say <laughs> they value integrity and they value the customer and they value teamwork
1: yeah but that's. Because- like- that's often because they're done by the marketing department or at least with a marketing lens, right? We need to be a values-based organisation and we need to put some values on our website to demonstrate this. So what do we think people want to hear? And so all the banks need to have, you know, integrity and transparency and customer focus and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, you, you need to actually go through the process of, okay, not well, no, but what does that mean to us? what does it actually mean in practice how are we going to conduct ourselves in a way that actually demonstrates that we have integrity or that we show integrity so it's it's about drilling down a bit beyond that and yeah definitely not having i suppose that marketing lens on it it's it, it's really about it's an almost an internal exercise first and foremost
0: so how do leadership need to respond when someone does point out the uncomfortable the values clash
1: uh then it's listen <laughs> They need to not get defensive. Um, look, it's it is it's really hard, and I've seen many leaders struggle with it because they themselves probably just live and breathe it, and they might feel it very, very strongly and it might just be in the translation perhaps throughout the organisation, there has been some slips and, the, and there will be slips, I think. I think that's inevitable, particularly the large organisation gets and to think when you can no longer hand-pick absolutely everybody around you and everybody who works for you. And so it's being able to actually, I think, be brave, hear the feedback and actually really take it on board and reflect and say, well, is this true? Have we, have we stepped away from our values here and what are we going to do about it?
0: Yeah, because we're all human, and we'll all rationalise some of that behaviour, won't we?
1: Absolutely, it's complete. It's human nature, and and we're all, as I said, we're we're all quite bad at receiving feedback. Generally speaking, we're very bad at receiving feedback. It's really hard to hear, and and so you will tend to write it off uh, on the basis of, well, this is just a disgruntled employee. Yeah, they're probably going through performance management or something. So therefore, I don't need to listen to them. They don't really understand because they're just an employee. They haven't been in all our strategic conversations. They don't necessarily understand where we're going or what we're doing. There's lots of ways that you can write it off, but you've got to listen to it first before you do, I think.
0: Yeah, and the consequences for trust and, and a sense of fairness in the organisation, I presume, are just massive.
1: That's exactly right, exactly right. And, and we're seeing, it, it all goes back to feeling like you're in a safe space within the organisation where you can raise issues. Because if you raise issues and they're battered away, they're ignored, or even worse, you feel that you have suffered some kind of detriment for raising it, you're not going to raise it again.
0: No. So we've talked about leadership, management, creating the right environment and being values based but if the rubber hits the road where people have to have difficult conversations and have to be motivated to have difficult conversations, what are your tips for them?
1: Have the conversation. <laughs> Don't, uh, look, absolutely. I think first and foremost, most people are conflict averse, where most people are, are very time poor and there are always reasons why you should be doing or could be doing something else. And so because we also have this uh, almost sometimes a bit of a positive approach where we think it's just going to get better or it will, it will go away or it's not an issue. First and foremost, have the conversation. Next, plan for it. It's really important to plan for it, to really think about what it is that you want to say. Make sure you're the right person to have the conversation as well. I think too frequently in workplaces, workplaces can be so hierarchical. And so there is this idea, it's like, well, no, I'll go and speak to their line manager and then they're the one that has the conversation or we'll go after the chain and that person will have the conversation. But there needs to be the right relationship between the two people to have the conversation. So... Put your ego aside. Really think, am I the best person to have the conversation when the outcome I want is that they actually listen to what we have to say and then use it as an impetus to change the behaviour.
0: Because I presume once it's been escalated, it often can't go back.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and all of a sudden it becomes a bit of a different beast as soon as it gets escalated. And so frequently sometimes when it is going through that formal structure of, of, of up and down the hierarchy, it takes on a different, a really formal tone. People can get really defensive. They can get frightened and feel insecure. And so then the defences and the hackles go up even more. And so sometimes actually the best person to do it is someone that's to one side. And and it could be someone in another team that you might actually have a good relationship with, for example, than actually say, "Hey, I just need to have a bit of a chat with you about this content," for example, and that can sometimes be a lot better received.
0: And what's that look like when it's worked?
1: <laughs> so we yeah we had a client. Someone was quite senior in in the organisation. And there was a real disconnect with the way that they were approaching their role and what the organisation actually needed. The organisation was growing quite rapidly and there was a feeling that they weren't in fact sort of necessarily keeping pace with with where it needed to go. But because there'd been a history of issues between this individual and the direct manager, we could tell that that conversation wasn't going to work. That that there was it was going to end up in a dispute and it wasn't going to get anywhere near resolution moving forward. So speaking to them, we said, okay, well, who else, who else is close to this person? Who can we talk to? And I said, Oh, you know, actually, you know, this there was someone, another one person on the exec that didn't actually work directly with them that they had a very great relationship with. They worked together at previous other organizations. And so it was just a bit of a chat. It was a very informal, let's go have a coffee, a bit of a chat. And And as it turned out, the reason why this individual was working in this manner actually came back to, again, concerns about, there were concerns about job security there as well. And so a lot of the feedback that was being given was falling on deaf ears. We ended up getting in a coach and working on some of that capacity building there and still working there happily now. But the employee was really receptive to the conversations because it was, had by a different person rather than that that manager that they had the
0: issues with. Far better outcome than expensive litigation. Melissa Scadden, may you continue to resolve disputes effectively. Thanks for talking today. (laughs) No worries. Thanks for having me, Steve. No worries. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.